Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. To Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songwriters and songwriting, this is Mark Lintonmeyer. For our episode 11, I'm talking to Madison, Wisconsin's Bob Manor, who for the past 10 years or so has been the driving force behind The Getaway Drivers. And you are right now listening to their song, A Call Out, from their 2015 album, Bellatopia. Now that's the album we're really going to be focusing on here. We're going to be talking about two songs from that, Suburban Summer Shine and Signs. And then going back to 2005, with the song Stuck from the Bob Manor album Ghosts of Yesterday. And we're going to conclude by listening to the song Stay from the Getaway Drivers' self-titled first album from 2006. To learn more about the Getaway Drivers, go to getawaydrivers.net. To learn more about this podcast, please go to nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. So I'm here with Bob Manor. Hello, thanks for doing this. Hey, Mark. All right, so this is my first foray into my actual local scene, and to show how removed I am from the local scene, we're not even doing this in person, though we could have, just because of my recording setup and trying to fit this in my day. Right. So you might as well be in England. This is cool, though. I like this. It's, it feels high-tech and stuff. You know? <laughs> you know, I like it. it. It feels like I am in England. Maybe I should just... Uh, do the British accent for the whole thing? <laughs> what? You know, it's all right. I could do that, you know? You know, maybe uh, have a little bit of mushy peas or something. That, that was, <laughs> you know, a pint. The puzzle of the love of country rock, of Americana, even more thrilling if it's somebody that's not even American. Absolutely. So let's get quickly into the first song, though, here. So this is from the new 2015 album, Bellatopia. What, is that, what does that title mean? Come on. Well, Sheila and I sat out in our screen tent on many summer evenings trying to decide what we should call this record. And we originally called it Wooden Box Heart because that was kind of the first track. And uh, we thought it was a nice sounding title. But as we wrote the record and the lyrics and the scope in our minds kind of became bigger. And so we, um, we tossed out a lot of different names and came up with Bellatopia. And simply, it's sort of a Latin-derived word meaning beautiful, perfect world. And then there's also an undercurrent because Bella also means war. B-L-A means war. B-L-L-A is beautiful. And we kind of like that sort of undertone to it. But yeah, basically, it means beautiful, perfect world. All right. It wasn't until I actually looked at the lyrics to this that I realized this first song, Suburban Summer Shine, actually had some social commentary built into it. Is this a critique of the internet age of... Moving from pain to window pain. Yeah, it's a combination of future anxiety. It's also a commentary on getting older, moving from pain to window pain. You know, how folks kind of look out their windows at their neighborhoods and see change and yet don't. I mean, it's slow, but to them, it's fast. And then they see their kids. And, you know, my kids are fairly typical millennials who spend a lot of time Instead of maybe going to a friend's house to visit like I did when I was a kid, they're Snapchatting and doing all kinds of things. There's programs I don't even recognize <laughs> that they use. 
And so there's a, just an element of anxiety, a fear of the future is kind of the theme of that, where everything is bright and sunny on the outside. But internally, you know, as you're sitting in your safe suburban neighborhood, there's change going on and it's almost a war. It's almost like this is getting away from me and where are my kids and why can't I communicate with them the way I used to? Just stuff like that. It's also kind of a picture song. I like to paint. I think of songs a lot of the time as word paintings like a lot of writers do. All right, let's get into it.
So the first thing, so Sheila is the other main person in this band that mm-hmm. you are married to, but that's only been the past few years, right? Did you meet her through the band or? Yeah, I put an ad in for a female backup singer. I had actually met her prior to her answering the ad. She was with the Celtic group Navin and beautiful singer in that group. I don't know if you've heard them, but they were fantastic. Great acapella singer and deep roots in Celtic and gospel music. So she answered my ad and I had met her a couple of times actually. So she called and I knew who she was. And the first thing I said to her is, why the heck do you want to sing with me? (laughs) You know, she just said, well, she was looking for a change and wanted to try a rock band. Yeah. And now that's the sound of the band is these dual lead vocals. Right. Is this one you wrote by yourself or that you guys wrote together? You were saying... I basically wrote the riff and the basic structure of the song, most of the lyrics, but she really helped me finish it off. She's very good at that. The outro was very difficult, and we spent some time at the piano figuring that out. And she always has a touch with the lyrics, and you know, we'll change a word here and there. So most of these songs are more or less a collaboration. The way we write is either I write the song or she writes the song and each other contributes. And then there's a few songs that we just sit down and purposely write together. Stay was one of those. Well, yes. So it's the Lennon-McCartney setup where you just co-credit everything so you don't really have to care. But with the convenience that you're actually married. So as long as you don't <laughs> yeah. get divorced, then you will not have the, the issue of, uh, of her getting credits for Long and Winding Road and uh, royalties <laughs> 20 years after the fact. There's nothing that'll keep a couple together like songwriting, you know. (laughs) Well, so that intro piano thing, that is striking. So is that just a matter of stumbling across something that was a really cool harmony? More or less, yeah. We'll sit down at the piano and just play and play and play. And then eventually I run across something that sounds good to me. I like minor, jangly, strange chords. I grew up listening to a lot of that kind of music. Um, Led Zeppelin is a big influence on me from a chordal standpoint, I guess you'd say, like Led Zeppelin 3 and some of the other records. And I just kind of like that minor key. And also the minor key sort of adds a sense of anxiety or darkness in a way to offset maybe lyrics or other things. Okay. I mean, it's not simply a minor key thing. You're throwing in right. sixth or something. <laughs> it's one of those thickeners. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's there's a lot of chords over chords, and I honestly don't even know half the time what I'm writing. Yeah, that's one of the nice things about voyaging. <laughs> so guitar is your main instrument, right? And then piano was the thing you expanded into, or did you kind of... No, actually, piano is my main instrument. I taught myself piano at about 11 years old, and guitar was a secondary instrument for a number of years. But I got interested in writing on guitar because it's portable. And um, also guitar is a big mystery to me, more of a mystery than the piano is because of the, the nonlinear layout. And you can stumble across some pretty strange chords on a guitar. So I, I have more ability on the piano than I do on the guitar. But I do like writing with guitar a lot because you can just sit down somewhere and wherever. And whereas to the piano, you got to go to it. So I, I think that's why a lot of people write on guitar, just because it's so portable. I know I asked you originally, okay, so pick for the first one something that is kind of a repeated theme in your songwriting, something that characterizes kind of the prototypical Bob Manor song. And you were saying, well, I really can't do that if we're going to talk about the new album because the new album is quite a bit of a departure. And mm-hmm. uh, listening back, so this is the, what I saw, the, it's about the fourth Getaway Drivers release. 
which started in 2007. And then you had some other stuff either credited as Bob Manor or the Bob Manor Band. Or I know uh, I had kind of heard of you first when you were calling yourself Tin Ceiling, that we had right. some people that auditioned for me, auditioned for you at the same time. We were kind of getting those <laughs> things going at the same time in the early aughts here. And those were all very firmly Americana, country rock kind of things. Did that yep. extend also back to the 90s? What were you doing? You didn't send me anything older than that. No, I wasn't really writing in the 90s. I, I wrote maybe uh, half a dozen songs in the 90s when I was playing with some friends in Sheboygan in another band that was led by a, a singer-songwriter. And I was really just sort of learning the ropes of songwriting. I got interested in it later in life, probably my mid to late 20s. So late in life. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I mean, a lot of people start writing in their teens. I mean, I, I really didn't start seriously writing until I was 28 or 29 years old. Well, that does give you a different perspective. I mean, I, I feel like, oh, uh, you know, by the time I was doing this thing in the early aughts, that was kind of like my third act in terms of I had already done the college band thing in Ann Arbor, and then I moved to Austin and was really trying in my 20s for a while there while going to grad school. And by the sure. time I moved here, it was like, okay, I just... I'm married. I had my first kid. I want to have a sustainable life. I'm not going to, you know, be out putting up posters all over the damn place. Like it's, right. but you sort of started at that level of maturity. I mean, I've always been into music and started playing early on. And I just never felt like I had anything to write about before I was that age. I don't like silly pop sugary lyrics. I just really had to spend 15 years or so just listening to a lot of music and getting some life experience, I think, helps with writing material that has some meaning to it, at least for me. That explains a lot of the fascination with the country rock stuff, or at least the way that you write it. I, I was just listening to... So you had a song called Sun Beat Down with lyrics like the dusty prairie land, we toil with tears and leathered hands. That's not your personal experience, right? No, no, not at all. This is some kind of reverence <laughs> for the, what was the name of your, you had an EP that was kind of a gospel thing that you said was right. uh, dedicated to your parents. What was that called? That gospel line. Yeah. That gospel line. Okay. And that's still early aughts. That's, is that the first full thing that you published or was it the Bob Manor band was before that? No, the first thing I did was the Blue Sky Falling uh, okay. CD. Yeah. And the gospel line, I think, was right after that. And that was, yeah, to my parents. It was their, I can't remember, I think their 40th wedding anniversary. So they're very much into their church, into gospel music, things like that. Um, I was listening to a lot of Johnny Cash, early Johnny Cash at the time. So that gospel line, the song, is really a ripoff of Mean-Eyed Cat. Sure. <laughs> but my parents loved it. And it was a good exercise for me, and I was getting to know my guitarist, Ellie Erickson, at the time, and she did a lot of nice uh, National Lap Steel work on it. And then I played some piano tunes I had played when I was young and had a lot of fun with it. Went very fast. So it was actually Ellie that did a jam session with me and I think told me about you guys the first time. It sounded like that was very much friends getting together. It wasn't, so what was the tone? I mean, I, I often, you know, we'll start these things like, okay, we're going to be set up. We're going to get a set together. We're going to gig next month. It's, we're going to have a recording. It's sort of very business oriented and learning a lot of songs fast. Was this like that or was right. it the opposite of that? <laughs> it was the opposite of that in a way. I mean, after Blue Sky Falling, I went through a divorce. I didn't do any music for a little while. And so the people I had playing with me at the time kind of drifted off into the wind a bit. And Ellie, I had met, I think at some country bar, she was playing with Sean Michael Dargan at the time. And I just sat down with her and had a few drinks and started talking. And I had uh, recently moved back into Madison after my divorce and decided to put together another band. So she was my first guitarist in town. Her and Ken Keeley and Steve Pingree, 
Yes, I should mention that Ken is the member that we also have in common, who was in both of our right. bands, and yep. and I'm actually now we're both playing with him now. Right, right. It's a uh, pretty awesome. Now this community is great. The music community on the east side is great because it's very familial, and it's it's really nice that way. You know, everybody plays in a few different bands, and there's a lot of camaraderie in that. I think it's just nice. I feel really at home. So I think the first time I saw Getaway Drivers live, I'm not sure what year it was, maybe 2009 or something. It was sometime when I was doing uh, New People and, you know, just went to see it because it was Ken's band. But I definitely heard of you guys around. And it was, what, you must have had 10 people on stage. You had the, <laughs> you had the cello, you had the keyboardist, you had uh, yep. Gail was playing drums at the time. That's pretty a remarkable sort of assemblage. It's, so you switched to Getaway Drivers when Sheila joined, right? When you became the dual-headed beast around there? Um, it was slightly before that. Okay. It was Bob Manor and the Getaway Drivers. And then after Sheila joined the band and started co-writing with me, I thought it would be wise to drop my name from the front of the band since she was you know, writing about a quarter of our songs. And I just wanted it to be a band name, not a person plus band name. I thought it was more democratic that way, I guess. Well, it's nice for branding to keep your name at the front of things if you can I mean, yeah, it was news to me on, I was listening to all the Getaway Drivers stuff on Spotify and I didn't even think to look up your actual name and discover, oh, there's three more albums there that I haven't listened to yet. Um, <laughs> I guess the new thing now is just, it's Bob Manor featuring Sheila, like, like featuring the Getaway <laughs> right. Drivers. Like, yeah, right. Yeah, I see a lot of that. It's a different world. So your love of this traditional music, you know, country rock, it seems for one, that it provides a common idiom so that it seems like it's very easy for people to glom onto in terms of, you know, when Ellie was jamming with me, since my stuff is kind of eclectic and all over the place, she was like, mm-hmm. I, I don't even know. <laughs> Pretty much it came down to I had too many chords. Like that was too hard <laughs> yeah. to, it was not natural to her style where she could sit down with the mandolin, like on the third song that we're going to hear today and just go. So it seems like it's amenable to growing to a large band like that and then uh you know gaining the cachet that you did well i know with your first solo album you won the mama the madison area music award for one of the singles off that in so far as it was a single was it a single does it get played on radio as a single or do those <laughs> i don't know i i didn't release anything as a single i just you know i just made a cd and submitted the song to the mamas and i was shocked <laughs> that i won but that was very, very much sort of a Tom Petty-inspired tune called The Sweetness, and Ellie featured prominently on mandolin. And she's a, such a great mandolinist. Yeah, so that was a fun song. So what's the growth here from the Getaway Drivers album sort of became ever more rich in terms of their instrumentation, you know, all very well recorded. Even the first album is pretty damn well recorded. This last one, Brian Daly produced, and it seems he was, this was your most heavy-handed production effort in terms of what he actually contributed uh, compared to your previous stuff, right? Yeah, and does that, does that explain a lot of the the difference in sound? Or it, it just seems like just that piano thing that you came up with, is that just a move toward rock in the first, or, you know, toward pop more in the first place, just some change in your focus? Yeah, I, I think it, it represents a change in the music I was listening to. You know, in the earlier days, I was listening to a lot of uh, Steve Earle, um, and mm-hmm. I kind of grew to love the storytelling aspect of that kind of music because you don't have to write about your own life or experiences necessarily. You can, but you can take a song and put it in a different time and a different place. And it just offers you so many more opportunities to say something. I think that the production 
that we went toward on Bellatopia was a reflection of the fact that I wanted to get back to more piano-based writing because that offered sonic possibilities that I didn't quite have on guitar. And I was listening to a lot more um, rich type of music. Like, you know, back in the early aughts, I was uh, vehemently against bands like Coldplay and some of the others uh, that were very popular. But, you know, I started listening to a lot of Coldplay I wouldn't say that this record is inspired by it, but it Coldplay is an example of the kind of music I'm listening to a lot now. Brian's favorite band, Death Cab for Cutie, that everything mm-hmm. that Brian does kind of sounds yeah, <laughs> you know, with a lot That's of right. echo on the guitars and that kind of space that he created in this mix as well. How did that interaction actually work on a, you know, you've got some places in uh, this song and then the next song, which we should just get out there pretty soon to have that on the plate as well. But you know, is it, is it him mostly playing with the effects or it's him actually suggesting things like, oh no, put an extra guitar over that section? Um, he wasn't quite that directive in terms of instrumentation. He would offer suggestions more in the vein of, what are you trying to get across musically here? And you know, he would offer suggestions, uh, a lot of it on rhythm and things like that. He was all about the principle of listening. I learned a lot from him in terms of just really listening to what the heck we were doing. And we had to do that to get that kind of depth we were looking for in the newer songs. We re-recorded a lot of stuff. I would record stuff here, give it to him to mix. He would call me up and say, why don't you come in here? <laughs> so he would bring the guitarist, for example, into his studio so he could get a sound he liked. So he was a lot about tone and arrangement. Okay, so you were doing a lot of the tracks, though, at, at your home studio and shipping them in. Yeah, we had kind of had to because I have this 100-year-old piano that I featured on the record uh, for the most part and certainly wasn't going to bring that to his studio. It weighs 800 pounds. <laughs> so, I mean, I have a lot of good gear here that I've collected over the years, decent microphones and preamps and things like that. So with proper room treatment and things like that, we were able to do a lot of the tunes here. But there were some tonal aspects, especially with electric guitar, that I'm not particularly great at recording and brian did a lot of that and in fact on suburban summer shine brian played a substantial guitar part on that and a lot of, a lot of that is him and where did this awesome joyful bridge where you twist it up and it twists to a major key and was that part of the initial conception of the song or is that something that was introduced later that was part of the initial part of the song i mean i wanted a bridge in there and it evolved by having what we called creative sessions over here with our guitarist dan butson So Dan Butson, Greg Thornburg, and I would meet here, and we would spend an entire evening on one song, just kind of creating the guitar part for that song and other songs. And Greg Thornburg was particularly good. Him and Dan go back a long ways. The the drummer, yes. Yep. And and Greg's a guitarist himself. Yes, very musical guy, generally. Yeah, yeah, terrific guy. Yeah, that's kind of where that came from. A lot of um, coaching with Dan, and um, it was something new for Dan. Dan had never been involved in a project like this before. Terrifically talented, and they had their own secret language, the two of them, and I would just sort of watch jaw-dropped half the time as they came up with this stuff. All right, well, let's throw the second song, Signs, into here. So this is another minor key. When you get pop, it speaks early 80s to me. (laughs) I don't know. 
And I think the Tom Petty thing is very apt because he was a guy that could go to country rock, but then also go to this, you got lucky, babe. I don't know. The, the, a lot of the stuff in the early 80s is fleshed out in a certain way. Maybe it's just this 80s synth sounds layered over them. Right. Uh, but it's straight up pop. Absolutely. I don't know what to call the rhythm. Boom, ta, 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 dun, ta, ta. I use that kind of <laughs> that sort of phrasing on drums probably too often, uh, but it's super catchy. Any sort of initial comments before we played about the meaning of the song? Well, the meaning of the song is um, it's about patterns. You know, the world is full of, full of patterns. The world is driven by mathematical patterns, fractals, just things you see, and they're everywhere. So we kind of combined that concept with experiencing loss. We had lost Steve Pingree about a year or so before I wrote that song. That is the cello player that was on the previous albums, yep. And, you know, Sheila talks a lot about her father, who she was close to, and she lost him about a little over a decade ago and talks about him a lot. So the song is about seeing these people in the, in the patterns that you see. I guess, loosely, uh, it's about that.
All right, another one where you've got this instrumental bridge that kind of, yeah, the structure is very nice and simple on this one, and the imagery is is very unified throughout the song, I should say. You've got your verse, you've got your little whoa-whoa guitar thing that breaks it up, and then the chorus picks it up nicely. The bridge is just the verse progression with just a longer solo, right? Or is there... I think it's an actual kind of bridge. It's uh, droplet traces and window faces... Well, that's what I was calling the chorus. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. No, I'm not even sure. <laughs> what was the chorus and what's the bridge? So I like the build in the, uh, just within the bridge. Just the vocal sound on this whole album is just great. The way the two of you are overdubbed and the, the double tracking. And so the growth mm-hmm. of that here, just in the three lines of the verses where you are, I guess, singing in unison a little on the second line and then mm-hmm. go into the, the high voice gets introduced in just the third line. From the fire to the flame, from the pyre comes the rain. Is the, so the pyre specifically is, that's the only indication. I didn't get that there was any thinking about dead people in this song. By looking. <laughs> it, it just seemed to be the signs on the shoulders of the night. I, you know, I think a lot about of, of that feeling when you get when you're walking around out at night and you get this feeling of meaningfulness. And now that I'm saying this, a very familiar thing to that is that you could then be talking to your dead loved ones or something like it's and get those sort of warm flushes like it's that's yeah. entirely at home environment for that kind of activity as opposed to when you're doing your laundry or whatever you know, some right. mundane yeah <laughs> i spent a lot of time walking at night so i know what you mean part of that song and and the others too is just i like poetry and i like word painting and i like words that sound cool together and so even though there's a sort of initial inspiration or thought behind the song, sometimes the lyrics drive themselves. And I think what that does is uh, I've had a number of people tell me that some of these songs mean different things to them. And I think that's a good thing to have. So you can have 20 people read a different poem and they'll all get something different out of it. I like that aspect of songwriting. It's uh, painting a small picture, a story that, that has some meaning to you, a certain meaning to you, and, and can you know obviously have have other meanings. So you keep it a little vague, you know, and a little universal. And I, th- I think a good result can happen. Yeah. Well, this one is particularly just the fact that it's look for signs of something being meaningful. <laughs> I mean, that's, yeah. that's yeah. as open-ended in the voices of the blind, in the music of the pines, you know, the, the nice evocative. It was the one line that from the fire to the flame, but the fire is the flame. What, what is the transition? <laughs> oh, <laughs> You know, I thought about that lyric yesterday when I was anticipating this interview, and I thought, man, I wonder if that's a weak lyric. And <laughs> it might be, but what it really means is going from one bad thing to another, from okay. one oh, difficult yeah. spot to another. It's the same thing, you know. It's sort of fire into the frying pan, fire to the flame. Yeah. So that's really all, all that is. I just thought it sounded cool. No, I... I- <laughs> I, I feel a little weird. I've with different people I've been talking to on these. I kind of mm. some of them I don't even bring up individual lyric lines because I know that's not the way they write. That they just kind of sit down and it all spills out. And then to like, well, what does this line mean? That doesn't yeah. mean like that's it's not even appropriate. It's uh, but you seem that you are a fairly careful craftsman. And then you have Sheila coming back and changing more. It was called for. <laughs> <laughs> you will be held to account. My daughter, just uh, who's in college now, just told me about an assignment uh, she has, and her assignment is to take a popular song and analyze the lyrics and uh, determine, you know, what they mean. 
So she's 19 and wasn't around to listen to a lot of the music I listened to when I was a kid, of course. So I gave her Stairway to Heaven and as kind of a trick because so many people for so many decades have analyzed those lyrics and, and trying to figure out what they meant. And then I read an interview not that many years ago with Robert Plant, and he said they really don't mean anything. <laughs> uh, he was just really high. That's all. Yeah. <laughs> There's no explanation. That She's going to pour through those lyrics, and I cannot wait to see what she comes up with uh, in terms of what they mean. And then I'm going to drop the bomb on her and say, well, the actual writer says they didn't mean anything. <laughs> I like the little overdubs that you did at the end or your yeahs and stuff, and you kind of layered those and did uh, – yep. that's not an unusual thing for you to do in songs, for you to put in a whoa or a yeah to kind of fill the – the way that it was delivered here, it almost seemed – part of these songs like Watch the Cloud Spell Out Your Name are almost mantra-like, that it seemed to fit with the kind of hypnotic thing that you were setting up here. Was that – intentional uh no not really (laughs) it just happened while i was recording the vocals and listening to the tune and getting into the tune and i just felt it kind of spill out of me with that said what was purposeful with this record for the most part was we really wanted to spend a lot of time making the vocals rich in a way we hadn't done on previous records so as you you know alluded to before there was a lot of double tracking and we put in a lot of third harmonies on this one more than we have in the past. Well, and those really made some of the song. I mean, the Suburban Summer Shine, that introducing the third harmony there to give it this steely dance. Or was it only three or was it more in some of the places? Well, if you include the double, you know, double tracking, it was more than three in a lot of places. But not super thick, like actual steely Dan wall no. of... <laughs> no, no, no. But it's, it's got gestures at that. It's got the little jazz elements in it. Yep, yep, it does. We had a great time doing vocals on this record. That's one of the reasons we actually decided we needed a a third singer for the live show is that we had done so much work on the vocals that we thought we could pull off the live show a little better with another female singer to hit some of those high notes. I can hit high notes uh, in falsetto and that, and it's all fine when you're recording, but to do that on stage, it's a little little harder for me anyway to keep the power in the chest and the vocal and, and sing falsetto, so... We brought Iris aboard to help us with that. Has there been any sort of, uh, uh, like, for instance, the least offensive way to put it is to bring in my own experience, that mm-hmm. I've felt a lot of times that my own voice is, I don't know, idiosyncratic enough, or in some ways it's worked better when I've been kind of the dual sharing the lead vocal duties as opposed to, like, this is my thing. And when, you know, I listen to the solo albums of yours, it does make sense. Like, this is the Bob persona and he's getting out there, and he's kind of a Steve Earle thing or whatever, but it's not really over the top. It's not theatrical. It's not like your voice is super thick, like it has a Johnny Cash thing. So it's really just sold on this is the kind of music it is, and in order to sing it, I don't have to be somebody that would be on American Idol. It's not necessary. (laughs) Oh, exactly. It's more honest than that. It's the fact that you sound like a person. But then Sheila has like a sort of more straightforwardly really nice female voice. Yep. <laughs> She's got a world-class voice and I've got an I've got sort of an everyday man's voice and actually I struggled with that for a number of years uh, feeling um you know insecure about my voice and I just finally came to the conclusion I think it was after I started playing with Ellie. Ellie beat me over the head in a number of areas in a good way and that was one of those areas. She just says like just sing it. You know, it's just it's your song, sing it. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Yes, it's always going to sound better to have the person that wrote the lyrics at least involved with the singing (laughs) even if you're both singing in a dual 
vocal thing. And given that hopefully you talk with Sheila about stuff, then it's not going to be some person coming in and interpreting. It's that you are working very closely. And I'm sure, as with any band, the more you sing together, the more you kind of sound like each other in terms of the particular inflections, you know, that that's what makes it actually work. Right. In Sheila's case, I thought she was much too good for this band <laughs> and for me when she joined. But when we sing together, somehow it really works. Our voices from the very beginning matched up very well. I guess, uh, sort of leather versus silk or something. I don't know, but it really works for us. And I don't really have any more concerns about my voice. It is what it is. And I'm going to write songs and that's what I'm driven to do. So what's where we've landed? I'm lucky that I have a wife who is a great vocalist and a great teacher as well. She's, you know, helped me with my vocals over the years. And I think they have improved somewhat. So. Oh, so you do the, the vocal exercises together? Do the- <laughs> Well, mostly when I'm trying to record a track, she'll, you know, say, well, you know, you need to breathe a little differently or uh, what have you. And it's not like we, you know, sit down every Wednesday night and have vocal exercises, but she has been very helpful. Was that part of your routine is doing the the little breathing things and trying to strengthen your diaphragm? Is that- yeah, she'll, yeah, she'll say things to me like, you know, open up your throat a little bit and, you know, your, your uh, angle of your head, if you... You lift your head up, you're going to sound thinner. If you sing with your head in a certain position and open up your throat a little bit more, you're going to sound better and just things like that. Uh, not so much breathing exercises as positional stuff. I think when I was like 19, I took a summer of voice lessons and recorded them on a little portable cassette thing. And I mm-hmm. used that to practice to, to the, do the vocal exercise to for years, would still pull it out. Now I, I don't know that I use that exact recording, although I do it so inconsistently that I never feel in shape. It's like an athlete who's like, oh, yeah, I got to get back in shape. They, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> keeping on top of it as an instrument. Do you treat your voice as an instrument in that way in terms of something that you feel athletically that you have to keep up? Oh, yeah. I mean, you got to sing a lot. That's the way I do it. I just, you know, try to sing as much as I can. Everybody has periods of ebb and flow with that sort of thing, depending. And, you know, we're all busy and have day jobs and things come up and we can't sing every day. But, you know, I guess I don't think of my voice as an instrument, but I do try to sing a lot. So we keep in shape, mostly for stamina. Well, yeah, doing a two hour show or whatever. (laughs) Some of these... So let's uh, listen to the third song, which is from your, I think, is a really good example. So this is the 2005 version of Stuck, I believe. Right, right. From your Ghost of Yesterday album, which is the last thing right before you actually formed Getaway Drivers. Right, exactly. That it was This has Ellie playing the mandolin stuff. And are you playing harmonic on this? Yeah. Day they look more like me. Mm-hmm. Now 
like a jerk In this tattered old shirt Because I've been here too long And the wasted days drift by And I wonder what the hell I've ever done with my life Something new in the ruins I smoke cigarettes and stare out the window uh-huh. And I miss someone with that boy's mood I had my chances a long time ago mm-hmm. And I can't compete Losing streak Cause I I've been here too long And the wasted days drift by Nice downer song. (laughs) This is the straight up alt country thing. And I think the way that I relate to that genre most is when it is personal like this. I mean, you're still using Mm -hmm. words like ramble in this shabby old town, which I assume is not the way you speak. No. no. (laughs) So so there's there's some genre conventions coming in here. Sure. Was this a story song or was this kind of you were feeling bad about yourself at the time? Was this a more personal (laughs) 
uh, it was more of a story song, but it did come from some actual experience. So there's a little, there's a couple of disconnects with the song. That is, I got the idea for the song from my years of living in Milwaukee, not a small town. The song implies a small town where, you know, you're just sort of, you, ne- you never get out. I think a Milwaukee counts as a shabby old town. Yeah, it's, it's not quite the shabby old town, although it's shabby in some spots. Uh, the uh, inspiration for the song came from my days living on the east side of Milwaukee, and there was this place called the Oriental Drugstore. It's no longer there. But it was a sort of cafe slash drugstore slash hardware store. And you'd go in there for breakfast in the morning, and you would see these people, these same people there day after day. And a lot of them looked awfully downtrodden, and they looked to me stuck. And I just kind of put myself into character and sang the song kind of with that in the back of my mind. This sort of that every day, doing the same thing, being in the same place, never really quite getting out of where you are. And I knew a lot of people in that area of town, and a lot of people were in, in that situation. I knew personally. So it was one of the first good story songs, I think, that I've written. It's just I had to take it a little bit out of the big city and plop it down in a different setting. So what sounds like authenticity there, was it, was it just because you'd been so steeped? I guess what I'm trying to get at as an ongoing theme here is that what makes your story songs seem authentic back here and right now is this, as you were referring to, that you've kind of got this built-up experience and that's all of what the country thing is about, that I can see why you'd be enamored of that because it's all people who have been subject to hard living and they, right. they you know, in various degrees of eloquence, they uh, channel that. It could just be talking about uh, getting the old gun out or it could be uh, a, <laughs> a much more dignified affair here. We have a jerk in a tattered old shirt. We've got, it's, we're not at the sublime level of the suburban summer shine lyrics here, but it's effective. Was it your own, had the divorce, you got your credentials, you, your, your old, <laughs> that like let you pull this off? Or is this the kind of thing that you, if you were you know, more into songwriting when you're 19, that you could have pulled something like this out at that point? I couldn't have pulled it out at 19. Okay. And I, I don't want to give anybody the impression that for this song or any of the others, that there's not an emotional component for me or I haven't felt the feelings I'm singing about. Yeah. That is always an element. And part of it is just, you know, kind of marrying the emotional content. I mean, I have a lot of anxiety. I get depressed. Like a lot of people, that does translate into the songwriting and, and into the storytelling. So really, when I'm thinking of characters I've seen or known, and then I put myself into that character, part of it is empathy, having felt those feelings before, imagining what they're feeling, that, that sort of thing. And just kind of connecting these things together, it seems mm-hmm. that the world you're writing about in this last song is... Sounds like a, a pre-internet age to me that these people would now be, you know, <laughs> stuck in their house playing their Xbox or whatever, whatever it is, totally, uh, and not necessarily hanging out in the coffee shop unless they just were not wealthy enough to have a. Everybody can have a <laughs> shitty apartment that they hang out in. Uh, <laughs> what you were reflecting on in suburban summer shine, at least the way I was predicting it, since you've got you know explicitly all the children play in cyberspace, they're running from the human race, and. The reason the neighborhood would go down the drain is partially because of this turning inward, that people don't right. go out and hang out together and there's no public space. And then with signs, that sort of what's key about that is it's being out. It's not seeing 
signs in the clutter in your little hole. It's, it's right. at least your phone. about getting, getting out of the house. I saw a sign in my cell phone. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a um, sort of thread of lament of loss of community. In when what I write and and the celebration of when there is you know a sense of community you know uh, in stuck there's still a sense of community it's just you can't get out of it but sense of community is important and I think that getting back to suburban summer shine that definitely the song is also a lament about that just a loss of human to human contact yeah I feel like as I get older I get more sort of agoraphobic and maybe it's a matter of that we have the internet the fact that I can do conversations like this without leaving my house and do so <laughs> on a weekly basis there's enough things that I sort of have to go out to for driving my kids around places or whatever that even though I was never like a bar guy even at the time still especially when I was pushing hard with the band thing trying to get out see other bands trying to be out in the club be out walking the streets whether it's just living a more suburban life and not on a campus like I was in different places. <laughs> right. Yeah, and I'm not even totally sure how I feel about that. Like, I feel vaguely guilty. Like, we should should be out more in a community setting. You know, I feel it's silly that this is the first, like, really extended conversation I've had with you, even though, you know, we hang out for five minutes after one of your gigs or whatever, but it's <laughs> it's not unusual. For, it's it's uh, It's been one of the, the banes. I know that you've been very good so I admire you in terms of your networking and you that you play a lot of benefit shows. Has that been an easy and enjoyable part in terms of uh, getting opportunities for yourself? Is the networking thing something you're comfortable with? For the most part, I think that, you know, for me, making music has never been about making money, which is why I'm sitting in this house. <laughs> yeah, anybody that, that, that hopes, <laughs> no, <laughs> that's good. Yeah, you know, it's not about making money. So, you know, you're trying to do some good and uh, the benefits. I'm a political guy. You know, we played uh, Fighting Bob Fest about a year and a half ago. And those kinds of things I've enjoyed uh, doing. You know, we played for the Humane Society, other things. It's just fun. It's a way to get out in front of people. And I do like the networking part. I like getting to know people. I'm a very social person. So it's as much about um, a social event for me as it is performing. Well, great. This has been good. Anything else we sort of want to hit in terms of the songwriting? Well, we should introduce the last song. So this is oh, the, sure. the beginning of The Getaway Drivers. Well, it's from your 2007 self-titled release. The song is Stay. You were saying this is a, one of the first ones that you co-wrote with Sheila. Yep. Sheila and I, in our first couple of years together, spent a lot of time in the summer, especially out in our garage. So some of these songs are written in the garage, just plunking around. So I kind of came up with this guitar part and she came up with lyrics and melody line. And it's pretty much that simple. We did a lot of stuff like that together. It's a love song and it's not an example of lyrically of something I would write. It's definitely Sheila's song. And that's a good thing because she brings another angle to the songwriting. And it was really reflective of us starting to work as a team. And we've really enjoyed it. We enjoyed it so much we got married. <laughs> Well, I think this was one that was in my head when I woke up this morning. It's so catchy that it blots out the other songs in some ways for me yeah. as I was trying to prepare for this. Whenever I, I hear myself inadvertently laying harmonies on something while I'm listening to it, like I know, okay, that's working. This is good. Yeah. 
Yeah, she's a terrific songwriter in her own right and has a slew of songs. And in fact, the next project that we're doing, we're going to take a left turn from Bellatopia temporarily, and we're going to do an acoustic record that's going to be mostly her songs. I'm really looking forward to it because she's just such a terrific writer. And the records that we made together so far have been three quarters my material and a quarter hers with some blending, obviously, from the co-writing. But she's a, such a great songwriter, and I'm, I'm so... Um, privileged really to experience that on a day-to-day basis well wonderful thanks bob (laughs) you bet uh thank you i'm honored that you had me on your show thank you Stay so we can understand 
That was my attempt to be social, to get out of my little basement world, at least by staying in my basement world here and talking to one of my local fellow musicians, with whom, as we said, I share a bass player right now, Ken Keeley. His wife that we kept talking about is Sheila Shigley. It's definitely a whole different and interesting world, trying to play local music as an actual adult over 40, where apart from the actual professionals, nobody's trying to make it anymore. But at the same time, music is not the be-all and end-all for most of us, that it was when we were in our 20s, perhaps. So it was especially interesting talking to Bob, who seemingly never got to experience that. Wasn't a band when he was younger, I suppose, but didn't have the anxiety that a singer-songwriter of that age, I think, has about will my contribution to the world be acknowledged before I am too old to be of use to the industry, to whom I pray will grab me up and exploit me. So I hope you all go check out Bob's work, again, at getawaydrivers.net. And if you're in the Madison, Wisconsin area... I'm going to be playing my first live show in quite a long time with Ken, the bass player, and Iris, the current third vocalist in the Getaway Drivers, as well as a guy named Ray, who's a wonderful violin-slash-keyboard player. We're going to be at the Boss Meadery early in the evening on Saturday, April 23rd. For more information on the stuff that I do, go to marklinton.com. Get more episodes of this podcast at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. Thanks to our parent podcast, The Partially Examined Life, you can check out my work on that at partiallyexaminedlife.com. So long, keep on musicking. This is Mark Lentzmeyer signing off. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.